want to turn our attention now to the letter of 1 John. We have been studying this for some time now, and we are at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and uh, we are going to look at several verses this morning and strive to do it rather hurriedly. So um, I recognize what time it is, and you'll need to listen quickly, and we will... Um, I don't know why you're laughing, but it's fine. If you're reading the Bible through with us, uh, you know that we have made it to the end of Deuteronomy. We will finish Deuteronomy uh, tomorrow. Now, you might not be there with us because you might be behind because the tendency is when we read the Bible through, starting with Genesis and going straight through, is that a lot of people get bogged down in Leviticus. I mean, Leviticus has all of those laws, and we wonder what in the world they are doing there as far as it pertains to us. But if we happen to make it through Leviticus, then we come to Numbers. And Numbers, by its name, is in part a book about a census. That is, there was a census of all of the people of Israel. And so there are some names there. And if we're honest, when we read names in the Bible, I mean long lists of names, whether it's in the Old Testament book of Numbers or whether it's in the New Testament genealogies, when we read those long lists of names, we really do think, why is it here? Or more significantly, what does this mean for me? I mean, how can this impact my life? Just all of these names, which of course, we have no idea whether we're pronouncing them right or not. And so we want to skip over them, but we feel guilty doing that because we know all scripture is inspired by God and is good for reproof and rebuke and all that. And so we muddle through it wondering why it's there. And yet many people in our day and age are fascinated with their own genealogy. People are studying their history and trying to figure out who their ancestors are. So what's the difference? Why when we come to the Bible and see all of these names, do we wonder why they're there and why I'm reading them, and yet we want to research our own families? And that's the answer. It's our own families. It's personal. So we want to see our name, and we want to see our ancestor's name, and we want to know where we come from. So imagine if it would make a difference to you if you were reading the genealogies in the Bible and your name was there. Would it make a difference? Would you have more interest in reading those names if you found your name there or the names of your ancestors? And I dare say we would. Well, I want you to understand this morning that in a sense, your name is there. Now, it may not be that your specific name is actually in the Bible somewhere, but what I'm talking about is the fact that if you are a child of God, your name is in there. This book is written for us. And so we're going to see this morning what it means that we are God's children. Now, understand as I say that, that this sermon is limited in its scope. I do not usually try to do this. I try to make sure that a sermon is in some way going to be applicable for all people. But I'm acknowledging this morning that this sermon is addressed to God's children, and therefore it does not immediately apply to everybody. Because as we said a few weeks ago, not everybody is a child of God. 
We are all creatures of God. That is, all of us are created by God, but not all of us are the children of God. It is only those who have by faith trusted in Him, having repented of their sins, that are indeed children of God. Now, having said that, if you are not a child of God, you can certainly become one. You see, the invitation is for all. Whosoever will may come. And so while it might not apply to you right now, it could apply to you tomorrow. Or it could apply to you this afternoon. If you will follow uh, as the rest of us have, or as many of us have, in trusting in Christ. So let's look at 1 John chapter 2. We'll start in verse 28, and we will go down through the third verse of chapter 3. 1 John chapter 2. I write these things to you about those, and I'm on verse 26, aren't I? So let me go to verse 28. Maybe that'll be more helpful to you. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Well, this is admittedly a very broad topic. What does it mean to be God's children? What does that encompass? Well, I want to say, first of all, that God's children relish God's love. That is, we ought to be men and women, boys and girls, who are children of God, who as a result, we relish the fact that God, in fact, does love us. Now, we talk about love quite often, whether it's secular or spiritual. And because we talk about it so often, we think we understand what it means, But the fact of the matter is often we think of it in very superficial or light terminology. Because we hear it so often, it has become downgraded in our society. But John is telling us here that we are to relish the love of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, number one, we abide in him. And I'm not going to spend any time here because this is where we were last week. But we see it again in this week's passage of Scripture there in verse 29. Abide in him. It's actually in 28. I don't know what verses we're talking about this morning. (laughs) I'm just all off today. It's there seven times in the passage we looked at last week and this week, abide in him. So regardless of what verse I say, you find it, and it'll say, abide in him. And we talked last week about the fact that abiding in Christ means that we have a desire to be with him. I mean, that is fundamental to what it means to love someone. When we love someone, we want to be with them. And John is saying that we relish the love of God, which in part means that we abide in him. 
But secondly, it means that we are to be amazed by him. Verse 1 of chapter 3, John tells us to look, to stop what we're doing, and gaze at the love of God. This is a very important word here. It is not just a word that says see or look, though that is the basis of it. It is a word that speaks of astonishment. It's a word that we find in other passages of Scripture. For example, the woman at the well, when she had met Jesus and she goes back to her town, she says, come, see a man who told me everything that ever I have done. It's the word that the angel used speaking to Mary at the tomb. Come, see the place where he was laying. It is the word that Jesus used when he appeared to his disciples. And he said, see my hands and my feet. So it is not just a word that means a visual glance. It is a word that speaks of arresting our attention. Look at this. Gaze at the love of God and see how amazing it is. Now, I love the ESV version. It's what I'm reading from. But in this particular case, it's not the greatest translation. It says there, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, that's a perfectly legitimate translation. There's nothing wrong with it. But in reality, it really goes beyond given. It, it takes part of that. It does mean that. But we're talking about more than just a gift. The love of God is a gift to us, but it is more than that. And that is why the NIV uses the word lavish. It's why the King James and the New American Standard use bestowed. God has lavished his love upon us. It is not just a secondary gift. It is not just a secondary thought. He has poured out in immense measure his love upon us, and that is why we must relish it. Now, I could talk about the characteristics of God's love. It is in my notes, and I am flipping through it now for your benefit and going beyond it. Because the truth is, it's really not something I should be doing for you. John does not list the characteristics of God's love in this text, and that's what we so often want. Well, tell me what God's love is like. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. Scripture does it in other places. But in this case, John doesn't say, have someone tell you what God's love looks like. He says to each one of us who are the children of God, look upon the love of God. Cast your eyes, gaze upon it. We did a series of sermons sometimes back, and one of the sermons we did was gazing at the love of God. Stopping everything we're doing from time to time and thinking and pondering what it means that God really does love me to the point that he sent his son to die on my behalf and yours. We are so busy in our day and age that we no longer have much time to ponder such things. But John says, see what kind of love this is. And that, too, is a word that is used in other places of Scripture that are very significant. For example, when Jesus calmed the raging seas, the disciples said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? This is a word of astonishment that is found on the lips of Mary after her initial meeting with the angel who foretold the birth of Jesus, where Mary is said to be greatly troubled and wondered, what kind of greeting is this? It was so out of the ordinary that she didn't understand the nature of it. There was another occasion where there was a woman who was, 
wiping the feet of Jesus with her own tears and drying them with her hair. And the disciples said, if this man were a prophet, or I'm sorry, not the disciples, but others, said if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of person she is. This is a word that speaks to the fact that the nature of God's love for us is an otherworldly kind of love. And that is why even my attempts, which I did not do to explain the love of God, primarily in the way that a parent loves a child, are are helpful, but they're not adequate. Because our kind of love never compares to the love of God for us. And so John says to every child of God, relish God's love. See what kind of love. Stop what you're doing. And behold the the amazing nature of the love of God for us and relish it. But secondly, we see we are to rejoice in God's calling. Rejoice in the fact that we are called the children of God. And once again, we we sense the wonder and amazement here in this passage when John says we are children of God. That is our present calling. And because it is our present calling, it is something to rejoice in. Being called a child of God is not something to be taken lightly or superficially. It is a privilege beyond our comprehension. Unfortunately, many of us assume that we are simply Christian because we were raised in a Christian home or because we were born in the Christian South or because we hail from a Christian nation. And therefore, we wrongly conclude that we are Christian because of these influences. And though they may have played a part in who we are, they are not the ultimate reason we are a Christian. The ultimate reason we are a Christian is because God has given us new life. And God has called us and adopted us into his family so that we are now the children of God, which is our present calling. But he goes on to say there is a future calling, In fact, John is honest here, and he says, now I know who we are now. We are the children of God. But what we shall be has not yet been fully revealed. That is, he knows there is a future calling, but he cannot fully explain it. You remember last week we talked about a couple of verses that if we read them out of context, might make us conclude that we know all things and don't need anyone to teach us? And we talked about how that's often misinterpreted. So people say, well, I don't need the church or I don't need teachers or preachers because I have the Spirit of God and He teaches me all things. We talked about how that's a misinterpretation because none of us know all things. And John's saying the same thing here. John is acknowledging that that can't be the proper interpretation of what we talked about last week because he immediately says there afterwards, I don't know all things. I don't know what our future calling is going to totally be But I do know we have it, and I do know it is going to be beyond our imagination. None of us know exactly what heaven is going to be like, and neither did John. But we do know it is a calling to rejoice in. We do know that we will be in the presence of God for all eternity. We do know that there will be no sickness, nor crying, nor pain. We do know that somehow we will have glorified bodies. And John tells us that we will be like Jesus. That doesn't mean that we will be little gods. It simply means that we will be like him in his holiness. 
so that in that time we will not need sermons on judgment to come. We will not need sermons on how to overcome sin. We will not need lessons on what is right or what is wrong. All of this will be in our past and we can simply enjoy the blessings and privileges that come with being a child of God for all eternity. And though John could not fully explain that, I certainly cannot fully explain that. We do know that Isaiah said and Paul quoted, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. There is a present calling. We are the children of God. We ought to rejoice in that. There is a future calling, though it is a bit uncertain as to its specifics, and we ought to be certain of that as well and rejoice in it. You know, there is a saying, some people say, you know, he or she is so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Most all of us are not in danger of any of that. (laughs) We are not so heavenly minded that we don't do anything here Because frankly, we don't think about heaven enough. And what John is actually saying is not that. Not, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Instead, John is saying, be so heavenly minded that you can be of some earthly good. Because when we see our future and present calling, that leads us thirdly to reflect God's character. That is, John says, I don't know everything that's going to be in the future, But I do know that what is there ought to change how we live now. How we live now ought to be a factor of what we believe about the future. Doctrine always has practical implications for present living. And so if you despise doctrine, then you don't have the understanding of how we are to live our daily lives. If we're going to be with Christ in the future then we ought to be striving to be like Christ now. And John says this in two ways. Number one, he says we are to practice righteousness. Now, we have to go back to chapter 2 for this, but the last two verses of chapter 2 are two verses that are hard to pinpoint, whether they go with what precedes or what follows. I said at the very beginning of this study that one of the struggles we have in 1 John is the structure of the book. And these two verses are examples of this. Do they go with what we talked about last week or do they go with what we're talking about this week? Now you notice that I've, I've included them this week in spite of the chapter divisions there. And I've done that because I think it's probably best to include them in these first three verses, really all the way down to verse 10 of chapter three. And in fact, if you have a study Bible that has headings, In all likelihood, the last two verses of chapter 2 are under the heading that flows on into chapter 3. And so there in verse 28 of chapter 2, he says we are to pursue righteousness. Again, that's in verse 29. I have yet to get a single verse right this morning. (laughs) Verse 29, practice righteousness. Because of our future calling, practice righteousness righteousness. And then verse 3 of chapter 3, we are not only to practice righteousness, but we are to pursue purity. Verse 3 says that those who have the hope of heaven purify themselves. Now, the word hope in the Bible does not mean an uncertainty. This is not the way we use the word hope. I hope something happens tomorrow. This is a certainty. Those of us who have the certainty of that future calling that we talked about a moment ago Therefore, we will pursue purity in the here 
and now. Now notice who John says is responsible for that. You pursue purity. Now we also understand that we are purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood takes away our sins. But at the same time, we are commanded to pursue purity, and there is no contradiction in those two statements. We know that we are purified by Christ, but having been purified by Christ, we are commanded to pursue purity. That is our responsibility. And so because we are going to be like him in heaven, we are called to strive to be like him now. We ought to have that desire. You know, sometimes people talk about a desire for heaven. Oftentimes, in fact, I spoke to a lady this week, and she was struggling with her health. She's a senior adult on the high end of the senior adult range, and she was talking about wanting to go and, and, and go to heaven for multiple reasons. Oftentimes, we talk about it because we want to see someone who has gone before us, a spouse, a child, a parent. We look forward to a reunion with them. Sometimes it's because we know that our bodies are, are failing and we're tired of the pain and the suffering and so we're ready for the rest that we perceive we'll, we will find in heaven. Some perhaps it's just a curiosity thing. They want to go to heaven because they are curious about what it's really going to be like. And while all of those things might be on the minds of some people, they ought not to be the main reason we want to go to heaven. Instead, we want to go to heaven because we want to see Jesus and we want to be like him. And because we want to see him and be like him, we are practicing righteousness and pursuing purity now. Because we know that's what we're going to be in completion then, we are desiring it so much that we are pursuing and practicing it now. And so there is a practical side to eschatology, the study of last things. And that practical side is we want to be righteous as Christ is righteous. We want to be pure as Christ is pure. As God's children, we want to reflect God's character, knowing that one day we will do that much fuller than we are now, but we're striving to do it now. You know, when, when our kids were young, I often told Tracy, you know, I, I, don't want, I don't want you to wait on discipline until I get home. You know, because sometimes my mom would say to me when I was growing up, just wait till your dad gets home. Well, you can imagine that didn't make me very anxious for dad to get home. I was sort of hoping he'd work late that night. <laughs> and so I told Tracy when we had children, I said, don't do that. If there's discipline that needs to take place during the day, you're going to have to do it because I don't want our kids to dread me coming home. Instead, I want kids to be excited that dad has come home. And those of you who are parents or grandparents know the thrill of opening the front door and a child running to you, desiring to see you because they've missed you that day. Now I'm going to get this verse right. Look at verse 28 again. <laughs> and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Christ is coming again. Are you going to be shrinking at his coming, hiding in a closet because you're afraid of what's going to happen? Or are you in great anticipation, with great confidence, going to be running toward him 
because you have longed for his appearance. You've been practicing purity and righteousness. And now Christ has finally come. And you know it means that your future calling is there. I want to encourage you to think about the love of God. As God's children, reflect on his love. As God's children, rejoice in his calling. And then as God's children, reflect his character so that when he appears, we will welcome him with great confidence. Let me pray.